If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. If you went on a road trip and you didn't stop for a Big Mac or drop a crispy fry between the car seats or use your McDonald's bag as a placemat, then that wasn't a road trip. It was just a really long drive. At participating McDonald's. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. I feel quite comfortable about using the phrase ethnic cleansing with regard to what happened to the, the German civilian population in Great Britain. That was Panikos Panayi discussing German internees in Britain during the First World War. The key question here is, oh, actually, what is the role of sea power in shaping history? What, what actually happened here? Why were we fighting the French at San Domingo in 1806, so shortly after the Battle of Trafalgar? And that was Sam Willis on first-hand accounts from Nelson's Navy. Hello, and welcome to the History Extra podcast. My name is Rob Attar and I'm the editor of BBC History magazine, which is the UK's best-selling history magazine. You can find it in all good news agents and on subscription. We also have digital editions available for the iPad, the Kindle, the Kindle Fire and Google Play. And we've now set up a page on our website with details of all our digital formats, including the price, content and availability. Head to historyextra.com forward slash digital for that. And also on historyextra.com, you can find our latest subscription deals for the print magazine. During the First World War, hundreds of thousands of Germans, both civilians and soldiers, were incarcerated in Britain. Their experiences are now the subject of a book by Panikos Panayi, a historian at De Montfort University. I spoke to him recently about his research into this little-known story. How many Germans were interred in Britain during the First World War? Um, it depends whether you count um, civilians and military. I mean, if we're talking about civilians, then it's something over 30,000, um, let's say thirty to 32,000. And then if you include military uh, prisoners, then it goes over 100,000. Um, so, you know, it depends how you're counting them. Were they interred in the same kind of way? Yes, they were. I mean, they... they when the war first broke out, there, the war, well, there was a whole series of government departments that were responsible for internment. And initially, there wasn't a clear-cut policy. So um, you had both civilians and military prisoners who were interned in the um, same camps. But as the war progressed, especially after 1915, 1916, um, the two uh, types of prisoners were separated. They had different rules under the Geneva Convention, for example, civilians couldn't work. Um, but essentially, the camps that they um, found themselves in, the two different groups, were fairly similar. 
How would a, a civilian end up being a prisoner? Would it just have been a German living in Britain or would they have had to show some kind of affiliation with the German country? Well, that's quite an interesting question. I mean, you can divide the civilians into, I guess, three main categories. The first category um, would be um, those civilians who were long-term residents of Great Britain. So, you know, there'd been migration from Germany to Britain throughout the Victorian period. So um, the census figure for 1911 says there's 53,324 unnaturalized Germans. Um, oh, sorry, the other issue is that their internment in World War I only affects males, um, except two or three um, females who are regarded as being, you know, dangerous to the realm. So the, of those just over 53,000, those of military age um, would have faced internment. Those who um, had become naturalized um, wouldn't face internment. And the way it works is that government policy evolved uh, over the course of the war. And basically, the decision to introduce wholesale internment was reached uh, in May 1915, following the sinking of the Lusitania. Um, and that's when internment of civilians peaked. However, to those, you also need to add... Um, some Germans were sort of um, spending time in the summer of 1914 in Great Britain. So two classic studies, one by Paul Cohen-Portheim, who wrote his account of internment. He was basically painting in Great Britain uh, in, in the summer of 1914 and eventually ended up in, in an internment camp in um, Wakefield and spent um, several years there. Um, and also another account of a... Uh, of an individual who was, um, well, learning English in Bexhill on sea and he ended up in, in the Isle of Man. Um, so there's, so we've got the, the long-term residents, those who were just passing through. And then what the British Empire did, I mean, in a sense, I think we, we need to view internment as a global imperial, well, actually imperial experience. So what the British Navy did um, was that if you're unfortunate enough to be sailing from North America to Europe uh, in the, well, let's say just after the war broke out in, in August 1914, the British Navy tended to stop ships, whether they're German or not, and take German residents off, um, bring them to Great Britain, and then they could spend years in internment camps. And connected to that is um, also... Uh, people were brought from British and German colonies to to face internment in Great Britain. Um, so I guess that's four categories in a sense, rather, rather than than three categories. So it is a sort of you know almost global um, system um, because you didn't have to live in Great Britain to find yourself interned within Great Britain. Was there any ethical objection to the internment of Germans who are only civilians? There was very little opposition to um, internment in, in Great Britain during the First World War. In the Second World War, um, internment ended up, ended, you know, lasted for only about a year or so for the vast majority of people. In, in the First World War, Great Britain was just completely saturated with a, with a sort of Germanophobic um, discourse. Um, and it sort of drowned out virtually um, all voices of opposition. I mean, there are voices of opposition, but they're in a tiny minority. So it will be, you know, uh, sorry, newspapers or, or magazines such as the New Statesman. Um, but I mean, they're, they're, it's almost absent. Um, the other group which sort of um, objects to internment, well, not necessarily objects, but helps internees and their families is the Society of Friends. But I mean, it is a 
you know, if I was going to do it in percentage terms, it's just, it seems almost as if there's a 95% for internment and a 5% against. I mean, if you gauge public opinion in the normal way, you gauge public opinions through, you know, commons debates or um, newspapers uh, and so on. So, I mean, it's an overwhelming s- support for, for internment. What would happen, for example, if there was a German living in Britain who was married to a British woman? Could they still be interred? and Would their wife then have to go with them? The German could certainly become interned. I mean, whether he's married to an English woman or not would be um, irrelevant. And um, the British woman um, would have to rely on on charitable or, or, or government um, support or, or work. I mean, the, even worse than that is you do have cases of people who were born in Germany, i.e. still have German citizenship, who will find themselves interned on the Isle of Man while their sons are fighting for the British Army on the Western Front. So, you know, it's a very complex process and one which sort of, I don't know, artificially divides families. You said there were quite a large number of German military internees. How would they have been transported to Britain from the front? Well, the stories we have, I mean, the overwhelming majority of them are basically captured um, in France. And in the middle of the war, there's a decision reached, um, well, sort of during the course of 1916, that they could be used in Great Britain to carry out labour and essentially in agriculture, although they do work in other areas as well. So... I mean, there's not that many narratives about the journey, but I mean, you know, they're basically, you know, transported to Calais or Le Havre, um, then taken by boat to a south coast port, Portsmouth or Southampton. And then they, they sort of spend a few days in, in one of these um, transit camps on the south coast. And then eventually, um, you know, they're taken inland to one of the, the larger camps, such as Patisor. Um, in Northampton or Dorchester, which was a, a very long-lasting camp, or even to Stobbs uh, in Scotland, um, and you know, and that's the sort of way that the process worked. I mean, there are within military, we probably also need to recognise um, some uh, prisoners from the German Navy, although you know, we're probably talking about a few thousand and also even a few uh, zeppelins that fell to earth but you know they're a handful sorry and in addition to the naval prisoners there's also submarine prisoners um, and they were treated worse than um, other prisoners because of the furore over um, the U-boat campaign and unrestricted submarine warfare. Although, I mean, that was a short-term thing and eventually they they had the same conditions as as all other military prisoners. So coming on to those conditions, what would it have been like for the Germans living in these camps? What kind of accommodation was it? One always has to come to the conclusion that um, the conditions within these camps were... Well, good, I guess, is is is, is actually the word I, I would use. I mean, if you look at um, some of the civilian um, diaries or some of the civilian memoirs or, or, or accounts of internment, some of them feel incredibly bitter about internment. And the classic account is Paul Cohen, Paul Time. He was an Austro-Hungarian, actually, who wrote this wonderful book, Times, Time Stood Still. And his complaint was, um, well, basically, he, he was completely bored um, because under the Geneva Convention, you're not supposed to work. Um, so, but having said that, you know, 
the Swiss embassy and the U.S. embassy until it entered the war um, had responsibility for conditions within the camps, you know, because of diplomatic relations being broken off between Britain and Germany. So initially the USA and then Switzerland was the go-between. And these two governments or their embassies in London carried out inspections, well, very regularly of virtually every single um, camp that was established uh, in Great Britain. And, you know, they're all available in the um, German National Archives and the, and, and the National Archives of, of Britain in, in, in Kew. And if you read these, I mean, you know, there's constant complaining um, by POWs uh, or internees. Well, actually, it's mostly civilian internees rather than um, military prisoners of war, because military prisoners of war, um, in a sense, being in an, in an internment camp was a relief from fighting on the on the Western Front. Whereas um, for for many many civilian internees, the internment that was their their great war experience, and they bit, you know many of them bitterly resented it. But you know, going back to the issue of conditions, I mean, the conditions were. Um, no worse than they probably would have been for any other male um, combatant, um, you know, involved anywhere in, in 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 Europe in the First World War. In fact, you know, if you're just looking at it from a rational point of view, were conditions bad? Actually, no, the material conditions were were, were you know satisfactory for sure. The kind of work that the prisoners of war had to do, what would that involve, and, and was it particularly tough on them? Well, the government, the, the British government, was particularly concerned about um, the harvest um, from 1916 to onwards. So, I mean, they, the military prisoners of war, did all sorts of, um, you know, agricultural work, especially, you know, as I've just said, harvesting. Um, so, you know, if they were involved in heavy work, they could actually obtain extra rations. Um, and also, you know, the, the ones who aren't involved in agriculture um, are involved in all sorts of other things, engineering, uh, road laying, um, and so on. So, you know, it's quite a variety of tasks that they're involved in. What was the reaction of the British people that encountered them, whether they were in the camps or in, in the local area? How did they respond to the German prisoners? That's quite interesting because in, I suppose I'll have to contradict myself about public opinion um, the point I made earlier on, because actually when real people, if you like, um, came into contact um, with um, especially military prisoners of war, they, they were actually quite um, positive towards them. And you do have examples of, um, you know, people giving um, the military prisoners food if they happen to meet them, you know, while, while they were harvesting or carrying out um, any other work. And they're, I mean, you know, there is examples of letters being exchanged between military prisoners and, and um, you know, local women, which um, and some of these actually end up in court, especially those individuals who give um, the POWs food. You also have one or two examples of escapees um, who are um, sort of, well, maybe not, yeah, I guess sheltered um, in, in the homes of um, local residents. So that happens on especially one occasion on the Isle of Man where both the woman who's sheltering the prisoner and then and the husband are sort of taken to court about this. So despite the sort of Germanoph rampant Germanophobia, um, when, um, you know, uh, ordinary people come into contact with POWs, um, you know, the hostility 
doesn't come across um, in the same way. Although, again, I'll have to qualify that by pointing out that the, one of the backgrounds to civilian internment is the mass rioting of May 1915 and when Asquith introduced um, rioting uh, in May 1915, the Prime Minister, it was basically one of the reasons he gave was to protect the German population. So, you know, I mean, I, there, it, it's still overwhelmingly negative, but the, the 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 attitude towards Germans, but um, you know there are certainly individual examples of kindness. One could say. Why do you think it was that the attitude seemed to be quite different to prisoners of war than towards Germany and Germans in general? Well, I think it's just. Well, I think it's the human contact. I mean, that that would be the only um, explanation you can use. You know, you can have the propaganda, the posters, um, you know, the the newspapers um, constantly beating the anti-German drum. But you know, when when um, you come across Germans on the ground, then you know you you realise they're they're just the same as you. I mean, I guess in a sense that's how all. Um, you know, prejudice works. It, it's just broken down when you have contact with the person who, you know, the, your rulers, if you like, are, are telling you to be prejudiced towards. So, you know, I think it's the human contact. And you mentioned earlier about an escapee. Were escapes quite common from these prisoner of war camps? Yeah, they were incredibly common. I mean, in my book, I've got a uh, a chapter called Escape, Release and, and Return. And I would say hundreds um, Escaped. I mean, I, I speculate whether it might even be thousands, but I mean, certainly we can say that hundreds of, there were hundreds of escapees. And sometimes if you read the newspapers at some moments, I think there was one moment in time in 1916 or 17 where there was something like 23 uh, or 23 different uh, people on the run. But I mean, what happens is that uh, <laughs> they're always caught, cool, except on, th there's only three occasions where, um, someone actually makes it back to Germany. And with the civilians, most of the civilians are interned on the Isle of Man. So not only do they have to get off the Isle of Man, um, they then have to cross the channel. And that, I mean, actually none of them, as far as I've discovered, even got off the Isle of Man. So the ones that escaped are, and made it back to Germany all escaped from, from the mainland. And one of them, Gunter Plushov, his account amazingly um, is still in print, you know, almost a hundred years later. But I mean, it's sort of the, um, you know, it's an escape yarn. He, he weaves a wonderful tale, which is why, why why that story's still in print. So while escape is is extremely common, capture is almost just as common. Why did you think it was so easy for them to escape? Was the security not particularly strong? Well, it, the, the Plushoff account that I've mentioned, I mean, he, he sort of, well, his story suggests that it was, but, you know, that while he was in uh, Donington Hall, that's where he, had, he escaped from. Um, he, you know, used to keep watching the guards um, and, you know, watched when they would, what, you know, their individual movements, and then he made his plan. And another account, you know, again, suggests meticulous planning. But, I mean, you know, the fact that so many, I, I mean, I don't think all of them, I mean, these two accounts are people who actually succeeded. So, um, I mean, all the camps had had guards. I mean, I, I suspect also, you know, the people who um, are involved in working in the countryside, I mean, escapes quite straightforward there. So, you know, there is security, probably not as obsessive, if you like, um, as it is in, in, in the contemporary world. So, you know, I think it's a combination of factors which, which allows uh, people to, to escape.
when the, the war was over, what happened to all these prisoners? Well, if we deal with the civilians and, and, then, and then the military prisoners, the, the civilians are basically deported. I mean, it's, it's an, quite a ruthless process. I mean, I studied this subject in the, uh, well, actually in the late 80s. And I, so I, mean, I use the phrase deportation. I mean, since I, I've come back to it, you know, I mean, my initial research was on Germans in Britain in World War I. Now I've moved on to this specific uh, focus on internment. And in the meantime, we've had the development of this phrase ethnic cleansing. And I mean, I, I feel quite comfortable about using the phrase ethnic cleansing with regard to what happened to the, the German civilian population in Great Britain, because, you know, you have... In, in, 1940, in 1911, we have 53,000 Germans. In 19, just well, at the end of the war, in the early 1920s, we have 20,000. And what's happened to the other 30,000 is that they've been deported. I mean, you can appeal um, against deportation. So, you know, there is some sort of judicial uh, safety net, if you like. People do appeal and are successful, but, you know, the overwhelming majority of Germans, um, German civilians are deported. And amongst those are also, of course, their children and their English-born wives. So if you're an English-born wife, not only are you deported from, you know, your homeland, if you like, you then move to a country um, <laughs> which um, has just been at war with your homeland for over four years. So, you know, it's quite a, an unpleasant experience for them in particular. And with the military prisoners, I mean, they're, they're sort of returned, you know, as POWs, Oh, but I mean, again, as part of the vindictiveness of, of Versailles, um, all the allied prisoners have to be returned first and then the, the German uh, prisoners are returned subsequently. So most of the um, return of the um, military prisoners is, is quite a gradual process and isn't completed until the end of 1919. How did the British government justify deporting all these, these German civilians who hadn't actually committed any crime or fought against Britain? Well, it was just the, the level of Germanophobia in, in Britain at the end of the First World War. I mean, the way you have to understand it is that, you know, this deportation has happened um, at the end of a process in which the German community has had all its property uh, confiscated. So, the, so, you know, from the Deutsche Bank to the local uh, German butcher or baker, all that property is confiscated without uh, compensation. And even worse, all that property is then uh, forms part of the German reparations payment. So, you know, you have that. Um, and you also have the, the rioting. You've had the deportation actually has been a ongoing throughout the whole course of, of the war and there was this whole series of of, of regulations um, introduced against Germans uh, during the First World War. Not only had all their businesses been closed but all their clubs had been closed, all their newspapers had been closed. I mean it's a sort of dehumanizing of, of the Germans. I mean, you know, some scholars um, talk about the racialization of the Germans. And, you know, in, after the sinking of the Lusitania, one um, newspaper called for the extermination of all Germans in Great Britain. So, you know, it's a complete dehumanization of, uh, of Germans. I mean, it, it feeds in from the Germanophobia towards the German nation. But I mean, making the link between the German nation and its representatives in Great Britain is easy. You know, I mean, they're the same in, in, in the discourse we have. And even uh, during the 19, well, the famous, one of the famous uh, slogans from the 19, from the Khaki election at the end of uh, 1918, um, 
was we'll squeeze the Germans till the pips squeak. Um, and, you know, that's the background against which all this happened. I mean, you know, it's a, it peaks during the war, but I mean, it sort of lasts into the early post-war period. I know the, your, your research has focused on the German prisoners in Britain, but do we have any idea of how their treatment compared with British prisoners in Germany? There was a lot of, you know, British media discourse about how badly the, the, the British prisoners are treated in Germany. And I mean, I, in a sense, I think I'd have to believe, you know, that the British in Germany are treated worse within internment camps. I mean, if we're dealing with the civilian population as a whole, it's probably very similar uh, within the camps. I think probably the British in Germany were treated worse than the Germans in Britain. Although I think, you know, one of my colleagues who's who's looked at um, Ruleben, uh, Matthew Stibber, the classic um, symbol of internment of Britons in Germany, was it was just outside Berlin, has suggested actually the way you have to understand this is um, the relative material conditions of, or one of the ways you have to understand it is the relative material conditions of Germans during the Great War compared with uh, Britons during the Great War. So if conditions were worse for British prisoners, they're also worse um, for the German civilian population as a whole so that, that that's one of one of the explanations i think we'd have to to offer for that and I, I guess the other obvious comparison would be with the second world war how did the treatment of germans in that war compare with the first world war well it's quite different great britain in world war ii sort of never um became so obsessively germanophobic in the way that it did in in world war one and i mean there's a, a whole series of reasons for that but i mean if we just concentrate on on the germans in britain in world war one and the germans in britain in world war ii the germans in britain in world war ii were overwhelmingly refugees from the nazis so if you're fighting an anti-nazi war um you can't really um intern uh, opponents or victims of the nazis so internment is introduced as a panic measure after the spring offensive um and the italian declaration of war on great britain so it affects italians as well in in in, in um, the spring of 1940 in the same way in which it's introduced in May 1915, uh, after the sinking of the Lusitania. The difference is that internment in World War One goes from May 1915 uh, until the very end of the war. In World War Two, um, it lasts for most people a year at most. And, you know, we'd have to understand that against the background of, you know, what I said previously, if you're fighting an anti-Nazi war, you can't intern the victims or the opponents of Nazism. But somehow in World War II, the government and public opinion saw sense, whereas in, in World War I, it didn't. I mean, you know, most of these people interned in World War I, well, had limited connections with, with, with the country from which they came. And in some cases, when they're deported in 1919, they, they, they're going back home after decades. And I mean, in one case, I... I read the man who's deported ends up living, you know, as an adult in his 40s or 50s with, with his sister because that's, you know, he's got absolutely nothing within Germany. And you, you talk about the camps that people were interned at at the time. Are any of them still around today? I guess the most famous one um, is Alexandra Palace in North London. Um, and, you know, that's still there. Um, you know, you can see the rooms where people were interned. Um, I mean, you, know, you wouldn't know it, although there is a plaque side of Alexandra Palace to say this was a, an internment camp in World War One. The very famous one um, is Nokalo on the Isle of Man. And this 
was probably one of the biggest internment camps anywhere in the First World War, certainly in the British Empire. And this lasts from November 1914 until the end of 1919. And I mean, I've just visited it because one of the things I hope to do is establish a memorial just to commemorate as an internment camp. And all you have is a field and then you have a, a a shield essentially uh, along the main road put up by the Isle of Man government. You know, it's probably about three or four foot square acknowledging this was an internment camp. And then if you go into the grounds, there's a group called the Anglo-German Family History Society who have put up another plaque. But basically there's essentially there's little trace of what happened. You know, the something like 30,000 men passed through this camp um, during the the great war but you know if you if you went to the Isle of Man and you drove past it you'd have no idea so you know in most cases there's little trace or no trace at all about you know there's over 600 camps that are existing in Great Britain um, during the course of the war I mean you know most of them are very small but they've sort of disappeared from from memory from British memory why do you think it is that, that people are more interested in this and more recognition hasn't been made of these places? Well, I think the main explanation I'd offer is, you know, it was just, I keep talking about this Germanophobic hatred uh, and, you know, it is extremely intense. And so, you know, in the same way that, that this experience is marginalised in um, World War One, it's also marginalised um, subsequently, whether in the 20s or, or, well, or after the 20s. I mean, you do have some local historians who now recognise that, um there are camps, there were camps um, in their localities. But it's, I think it, if you read about this, this episode, especially the treatment, I mean, you know, the treatment of the civilian internees as a whole is a, is a very unpleasant history. I mean, the treatment of the military prisoners, you know, it's humane. I mean, I, you know, I would never, you'd have to, if you read all the documents, German POWs in, in Britain were treated well. But I mean, if you put the the civilian internment in the context of the treatment of Germans in, in Britain during the First World War as a whole, then it's sort of, you know, it's, it's a very uncomfortable episode in, in British history. And, you know, it doesn't really fit in with the mainstream stereotypes about tolerant Britain and so on, because, you know, it, it's, it's an extremely unpleasant, unpleasant episode. So it's the kind of history that maybe some people don't really want to hear. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I guess that's, that's one way of putting it. Yeah. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need indeed. That was Panikos Panayi, Professor of European History at De Montfort University. His new book is out now and it's titled Prisoners of Britain, German Civilian and Combatant Internees During the First World War, published by Manchester University Press. A book that was discovered in the depths of the British Library features a collection of first-hand reports of sailors from the turn of the 19th century. 
Naval historian Sam Willis has written an article about these reports for our March issue, and he spoke to our book's editor, Matt Elton, about the collection and what it can tell us about the golden age of the Royal Navy. So how and when did you come across this collection of records? Well, I came across the dispatches in 2010 when I was doing the research for um, a, a book called The Glorious First of June, which is about a naval battle which was fought in 1794 between Britain and France. And I, I knew from the British Library catalogue that there was a letter there from Admiral Howe back to the Admiralty. And so I was expecting just to read a, a single letter, maybe two or three pages. Um, and, and this is the moment they wheeled over a, a massive box the size of a coffin um, and inside it was a, a truly extraordinary collection of dispatches. And how, so how, how many documents are we talking all bound up in this box? Um, in terms of documents, I'm not sure, but there are at least 350 pages. Wow. So uh, it's an extraordinary treasure trove um, and they include the main admiral's dispatch the main admiral's narrative of the battle in which he's been in some are incredibly short some are very long it includes descriptions of the battles which have been sent by his captains it includes um, the bosun's damage reports it includes surgeons reports of injuries uh, received by men it includes captured narratives maps charts it just goes on and on it's, it's an absolute treasure trove and what dates does it cover the battles run from 1794 till 1806. The, the ones that have been collected here are the most significant British fleet victories of the French Revolutionary and Napoleonic Wars. Um, it's an interesting chunk of history um, because it is not at the beginning of the French Revolutionary War and it certainly is not at the end because the, the end was in 1815 when we finally defeated Napoleon. So the, the collection starts, say, two years after the beginning of the French Revolutionary Wars and it finishes a full nine years before they end. Um, but it was in this period where the British military dominance was such that it, it equaled any in history. It was an extraordinary period. It seems kind of strange that such a kind of extensive and valuable collection could have been, you know, unexplored for so long. Were you surprised that this was the case? I was enormously surprised. Um, the majority of British naval records are are actually kept in the National Archives in Kew, and that there are millions of naval records there. There are letters um, from uh, captains to the Admiralty, from the Admiralty to captains. There are logbooks. There's a whole variety that goes back to, to the Navy of, of Henry VIII. Um, now, these letters have been removed uh, from that collection and, and when, when this body of dispatches was created in 1821. Um, and so any naval historian would actually go to the National Archives to in expectation of finding these letters, but they're not there. And there's nothing there that says that they're not there. Um, and so I think that's one of the reasons explaining what, why, why so many scholars have missed this collection. And they genuinely have been missed, that like people didn't know that they were all there to this extent. I found a handful of, of um, references to them in, in the past 60 or 70 years of scholarship. Something like five people have mentioned them in published published works. And um, what's really 
really uh, interesting is that um, if you look at the Oxford Dictionary of National Biography, um, there it has the, the, the kind of the official short biography of, of all of these these admirals among all of the main figures of English history. And it also lists the sources uh, of their letters, their archives. And none of the admirals that are mentioned in dispatches have this collection of dispatches noted as a source for their work, um, which is which is a terrible shame because it was in the aftermath of battle where you can see the personality of these people so clearly. Mm, it's incredible. Um, so you touched on there the kinds of record, well, the kinds of information that's available through these records. Um, what can we learn from them? The records are all of different types. The The narratives generally describe what happened. Um, but what's interesting is... is often what, what has been excluded from the description as much as been what has been included. We learn about the event that they describe, we learn about the character of the Admiral in person. What's amazing is the variety of material that you get within these dispatches, and they cover seven different battles, and every battle was commanded by a different Admiral. The only one where it slightly crosses over is the Battle of the Nile in 1798, when Nelson defeated uh, the, the fleet of Napoleon, and the Battle of Trafalgar. But Nelson died shortly after the start of the Battle of Trafalgar. So that fleet was actually commanded by Admiral Lord Collingwood. So what we have here is the glorious 1st of June in 1794 with Admiral Howe. We have the Battle of Cape St. Vincent in 1797 with John Jarvis, the Earl of St. Vincent and the Battle of Camperdown in the same year with Admiral Duncan. Um, we have the Battle of the Nile in 1798 with Nelson, Copenhagen in 1801 with Hyde Parker, Trafalgar in 1805 with Collingwood, and then uh, the Battle of San Domingo in 1806 um, with uh, Admiral Duckworth. So you get this incredible variety of the personalities of these admirals. Talking about the personalities, um, to what extent do we get a feel for the kinds of men who are writing these letters? When you read the letters, you get a real sense of their personalities. Some, like Howe and Duckworth, found it very difficult to express themselves in paper. They were very decisive when commanding a fleet, but, but they really rambled when they were trying to describe something. Others are incisive and quick. Um, Duncan is one of those. He was a man of deeds and not words, and so his dispatch is incredibly brief. And he actually wrote it before the battle had finished. Um, he was saying very much, this is what I am doing rather than this is what I have done. And I think that's that's a particularly interesting example. Um, the Hyde Parker one from um, Copenhagen is interesting because of the political manoeuvres that happened um, before the battle. Nelson's uh, dispatches are very well thought out. He doesn't rush them. He he sees it as an opportunity to uh, very much generate support for him, for generate support for his career. He's a real wordsmith and a storyteller. So he has sat down, he has taken his time over it. And his dispatch, the Nile dispatch, the copy in this collection, is actually written by a secretary. It's been dictated, which again gives you an impression of a very measured construction. Something else that also interests me about the collection um, from your feature is that as well as the words, there's quite a lot of visual documents. Um, what kind of information do these include? On the one hand, you have the letters, but also we have these amazing visual documents. We have um, several maps from the Battle of the Nile, which um, were 
attached to a French narrative. Um, and the Frenchman in question had actually written this narrative while in captivity on board a British ship after the battle. There are also a great deal of um, tables giving casualty figures. Um, the casualty figures are fascinating because they're a real snapshot of a fleet in the aftermath of battle. Uh, almost all of them um, are, are inaccurate. They, we, we no longer think that the figures given in these letters are um, what actually happened in the battle. And, and that's, that's an important lesson, I think, for the letters from the captains and admirals as well. There was so much chaos and confusion in the battle that actually these people who were there were unable to get a rounded grasp on the events that they were describing. And so we have these very sharp sort of shards, these sharp glimpses of history, which are as much blinkered as they are illustrative of what they have seen. Um, other of this visual material, we have the lines of battle, we have the fates of enemy ships, um, a whole host of whole host of things. One thing that these letters do allow us to do, which really interested me, is that you get a sense of the personal impact of the, of the war from them. Um, are there any particular examples that you think bring this home? One of the ones which is really interesting is a letter after the Battle of Camperdown, which is written by William Bly. This is the William Bly from the Mutiny on the Bounty. And um, he, having been kicked off the bounty by Fletcher Christian, he survived a three and a half thousand mile open boat journey. And if anyone knew about discomfort, it was William Bly. And interestingly, he writes a letter after the battle and he's, he writes to the Admiralty complaining that his men have lost their beds and their bedding and, and, and their hammocks and their clothes and their shoes. Things very personal, things really to do with, with actual the, the physical comfort of the sailors who have risked their lives. So it's a particularly interesting document, whoever had written it, but the fact that it was Bly makes it much more so. Mm. Are there any other characters that particularly stand out from the collection or you think came across in a different light from how you expected? One of the captains who fought at the glorious 1st of June was a particularly heroic, adventurous fighter. His name was Thomas Pasley and um, actually his his diaries that survive called them um, the Pasley Sea Journals are one of the most entertaining uh, collections of, of letters from the period that you could ever hope to read. Um, he wrote a letter to Admiral Howe in the aftermath of the glorious 1st of June um, because Howe wanted to know what had happened in different parts of the battle. They were fought over miles and miles of ocean. There was no way that one Admiral could actually understand or know what had happened. So he, Ad Howe asked his captains to write their own personal reports. How received all of these reports in the, 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 the days after the battle, but Pasley's was late. It was four or five days late. And it was because he, he'd had a leg amputated and he refers to it in, in his letter as my unfortunate situation. But apart from that, he makes no reference at all to the fact that he's had one of his legs cut off. Um, it's a letter that he has dictated to a secretary um, and he, he can barely hold a quill to sign his name at the foot of it. It's a shaky, wobbly signature. Um, but the language is full of wonderful Paslian flourishes, um, celebrating the heroism of his men and the heroism of the other captains that he witnessed. It's a letter of extraordinary courage, and his loss was a terrible blow to the Royal Navy. One of the things that really comes across is how different the admirals were. They were certainly not a carbon copies of each other. Um, they were of different ages. Nelson was incredibly young when he fought at the Nile. Howe was very old when he fought at the glorious 1st of June. And they all 
dealt with the trauma of battle in different ways. They all dealt with the tasks of writing to the Admiralty in different ways. And so we don't see the Navy kind of churning out the same type of Admiral throughout these years. And in fact, what is most striking about it is the extraordinary variety of the people that reached this high rank. Were there any aspects of the period that the collection made you reconsider? One of the things that this collection really makes you think about is the relationship between the flag officers and their captains. And this is related to their different personalities. So you could be a captain serving one day under Jarvis and then um, a year later you could be serving under Duckworth. And you get a, a real sense of um, in, intense friendship, but also of, of major personality clashes as well, which you, you'd always get in fleets, but they do really come across um, in these dispatches, often in the gaps, which is really interesting. Why, why did Howe not thank some of his captains after the glorious 1st of June? Why did Nelson not name his second in command after the Battle of the Nile? Why was Duckworth not even speaking to his second in command at the Battle of San Domingo? And these are issues that all come out in the dispatches. You have to know where to look sometimes, but they're all there. We've talked a lot about the um, the personal relationships between people. Um, do these letters um, throw a new light on the kind of wider kind of naval picture of the period? One of the really interesting questions that these dispatches raise is is. Uh, illustrated by the dates in which they cover. So we have these battles from 1794 to 1806. These are extraordinary repeated fleet victories. We beat the French, the revolutionary French in 1794, the Spanish in 1797, the Dutch again in the same year, uh, the Napoleonic French in 1798, the Danes in 1801, the French and the Spanish in 1805, and then the French again in 1806. So we're, we're winning these massive fleet victories, but then we're having to fight again and again, and again, and again. And then the last battle is in 1806. That's nine years before the war ended. So the key question here is, oh, actually, what is the role of sea power in shaping history? What, what actually happened here? Why were we fighting the French at San Domingo in 1806, so shortly after the Battle of Trafalgar? Everyone thinks that the British won total control of the sea after the Battle of Trafalgar. But of course, that's nonsense. We didn't do anything like that at all. Um, two entire fleets didn't fight. French fleets didn't fight at Trafalgar. So we had to deal with those in the immediate aftermath. So it's the it's locating these series of battles within the broader narrative of the history of the war that really makes you question the impact of sea power on shaping history. Do you have a favourite letter from the collection or a couple of favourites? Well, my favourite letter in the collection is from Collingwood to a Spanish admiral called Alava um, in the aftermath of Trafalgar. Collingwood's, he's been in shock, basically. He's, he, he's a bit of a wreck after the battle, and he's trying to find out what had happened. He's trying to assess the scale of his victory. And he hears that one Spanish flag officer, Alava, had actually surrendered. And he then discovers that Oliver's actually in Cadiz. <laughs> Oliver's legged it. He's gone home. He's having a lovely time at Cadiz. So Collingwood writes this brilliant letter saying, oh, dear sir, I'm delighted to hear you are having a nice recuperation and your wound is not too bad and you're in Cadiz. But actually, you surrendered yourself for me and I would like to consider yourself you to consider yourself as a prisoner of war. And um, Alaba replies, unsurprisingly, disagreeing with him. <laughs> he says, no, I didn't surrender at all. I'm fine and I'm not going to come and be your prisoner. Um, now, Collingwood 
reacted to this in a really interesting way. He was an incredibly gifted diplomat, Collingwood, and not many people recognise that. Um, he realised the precarious situation that the Spanish held in, in relation to their allies, the French. And Collingwood didn't press it. He didn't say, actually, you, you did uh, uh, surrender and you are going to be my prisoner. He sent him a big bag of fruit <laughs> and some cheese um, as a present. And um, Alava sent Collingwood back some port and some other, other goodies. And we think that this was actually a key moment in the changing relationship between Britain and Spain, who were enemies at Trafalgar. But in 1807, two years later, the Spanish switched sides. And that was absolutely crucial to the way that the Napoleonic Wars actually ended. And finally, I suppose, uh, what's going to happen to the collection now? Are there any plans for its future? The British Library have been hugely enthusiastic about, about the discovery. And we are now talking to them about um, different ways in which we can um, make make the collection as broadly accessible as possible, because we need to remember that that was the purpose that these dispatches were gathered together. They weren't randomly put together. They were given as a gift from the Lords of the Admiralty to the nation in the year that Napoleon died in exile in 1821. It was a, a way of looking back on this period of extraordinary victory and saying, these are the lessons of sea power. This is this is how we, we carved out our empire. This is how we won peace. And the fact that it was a gift and that it was created to be shared, to be seen as an educational and as an inspirational tool is crucial to its identity. And I think we really need to move forward and to make sure that as many people as possible get to see this collection of dispatches. That was Sam Willis. Sam is the author of In the Hour of Victory, The Royal Navy at War in the Age of Nelson, which has recently been published by Atlantic. You can read an article by Sam in the March issue of BBC History magazine, which is on sale now. Also in this edition, we've got articles on Henry V, Thomas Cromwell, Egyptology and the Richard III debate. You can get hold of it in all good news agents and digitally. If you visit historyextra.com forward slash digital, you can find information on our digital editions. And that's almost all for this week. Do let us know what you think on email. We're podcast at historyextra.com. You can follow us on Twitter at History Extra or head to facebook.com forward slash History Extra. Next week, we'll be talking about two titans of English history, Henry V and Thomas Cromwell. Do join us for that. And in the meantime, don't forget to visit our website, historyextra.com, where you can find quizzes, podcasts, blogs and more. The History Extra weekly podcast was recorded in Bristol and produced by Jack Fletcher.